Uh, we've made it to John chapter 7. We'll start with verse 32, picking up where we left off last week. And uh, I just want to preface tonight with saying this. I've been looking forward to getting to this passage for months. Um, there's a, a statement made in this passage um, that is found, I believe it's only found here. I don't believe it's in any of the other gospel accounts. I might be wrong on that. I didn't look that particular part up, uh, but I'm pretty sure it's only found here in the gospel of John. It's a uh, seemingly uh, kind of benign statement, uh, but once again, there's nothing in your Bible by accident. Um, and uh, in understanding your Bible, um, understanding what God is doing, what he's been doing, what is about to happen. Um, a statement that's made here in this passage is actually critically important. Uh, and I don't believe I'm overselling that. Um, and so we'll get to that here in just a second, but <clears throat> I'm excited about uh, talking about this passage of Scripture I just get excited about talking about the Bible. Um, but this, this passage is, uh, is very important. Uh, it's very important for us. And so I just pray that, honor, that God would honor the reading of his word tonight. Amen. So we'll pick up with verse 32. <clears throat> and uh, if you remember uh, everything that was transpiring just prior to this, um, you know, and... Jesus is saying, you know, you know me and you know where I'm from and uh, that, he, that he's going away and uh, all these other things that were going on and everybody, there was this crowd and they were kind of debating about him. And so in verse 32, it says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these matters concerning him and the Pharisees and the chief priest sent officers to seize him. Therefore, Yeshua said to them, yet a little while I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me, and you shall not find me. And where I am, you are unable to come. So <clears throat> let's stop here just for a second to kind of set this up. The Pharisees, they hear about all this that's going on, and they send uh, some officials, officers, um, if you will, leading people among the Pharisees, we'll just say it that way, to actually arrest him and bring him back. So <clears throat> I want you to notice here that in verse 33, here in the Scriptures version that we're using, it says, Therefore Yeshua said to them, Yet a little while I'm with you. Um, in the ESV, it says, uh, then Jesus said, and then there's the quote of what he said. I like the way that the scriptures has it here because it puts everything in context. So what you need to remember is that while we're reading this story, we're going to read our Bible in, so we're going to read it in context. So this statement in verse 32 about the Pharisees sending these officers to arrest him and then it says, you know, then Jesus says, blah, blah, blah. He's not just saying this to 
just the crowd, but specifically to these people that came to arrest him. And that's what I want you to pay attention to because this, you're, what you'll find is that this, these comments made to these officials, and then there's some other stuff that'll happen, uh, and then the way the story ends, it's sandwiched between the confrontation that basically Yeshua has with these officials that are an extension of the authority of the Pharisees. Then there's this conversation that the Pharisees have among themselves dealing with these statements and what all's going on. Uh, <clears throat> and so this becomes extremely important. So then I want you to notice something else here of what it says. Folks, words are important, right? Especially when we're talking about the Bible. So it's really important to slow down and pay attention to the words that are here. It says, therefore, Yeshua said to them, yet a little while, in other words, I'm just going to be here with you for a little while, and then I'm going to him who sent me. Isn't it amazing how Yeshua can say something or we can read something and not hear what he's saying or what we're reading. These officials do that explicitly because what does he say? Where does he say he's going? Let me just post that as a question for us here in the room. Where does he say he's going? He said it clearly. He's going back to the Father because he's already said prior that the Father sent him. Now he's saying, I'm going back to the one who sent me. I'm only going to be here for a little while with you. I'm going back to the Father. He continues on. He goes, you're going to seek for me, but you're not going to find me. And where I'm going, you're not able to get there. Well, and that one's packed with meaning. Number one, they're not going to be able to get there immediately. Number two, some of them are simply not ever going to be able to get there. So what I want you to pay attention to is they don't pick up on the fact that he said, I'm going back to the Father. They're going to pose a question here in a minute and go, so where, where is he going? That we're not going to, what, what's, he, what's he talking about here? And this is the question that it's verse 35, and I'm going to really encourage you to circle that verse and maybe pay special attention to this because this is actually huge. It is hugely important, and I'm going to show you why. So picking up in verse 35 and 36, it says in the Scriptures, once again, it says, the Yehudim therefore said to themselves... Okay, so they're talking to themselves. Who is this? These are the leaders, these Jewish leaders that he sent. And they go, so where is he about to go that we're not going to find him? Is he about to go to the dispersion? I believe in the ESV it says diaspora. Okay, is he going to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? Another term for the Greeks would be nations or goim. Okay, we'll get to that here in a second. And then he goes, and teach the Greeks. You, you, you following that? Um, and then in verse 36, it says, what is this word which he said, you're going to seek me, you're not going to find me, where I am, you're not able to come. So they're, they're really puzzled by why he said mainly because they didn't listen. 
Um, but then they make a statement. These are the religious leaders. These are the officers. This is what they're saying. And they make this comment. <clears throat> this gets overlooked by so many people. It is amazing. Watch this. The Yehudim therefore said to themselves, where's he about to... Where's he going to go that we can't find him? So this Yehudim is, in the Greek, the Eudioi. Okay? Now, the Scriptures version uses this word Yehudim to mean Jews, but technically, it's a very specific phrase, Eudioi, meaning the Judean Jews that are in charge. In other words, the religious leaders of the Judean area that are in charge of everything, uh, religious and legal, okay? And there's the, the fight going on among these subgroups and especially those that are Judean and those that are Galilean and up in the Sumerian area, which is who this gospel is primarily written to. You have to pay attention to that. All of this comes out in these nuances and trying to figure out, okay, what's going on? Who's, who's this letter written for? This gospel account, one of the four, who was it really written for? When you get into the nuances, you realize he's really writing this so that the, the people in the dispersion, the Jewish people of the dispersion, will understand that Yeshua is the Messiah. These people in the dispersion are the same people the apostle Peter and James write to in their books. Now, what's it mean by the dispersion? When you see this word of the dispersion or the diaspora, it's referring to the 10 northern tribes that were conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C., so by the time it's Yeshua's walking here at around age 30, it's been close to 800 years that they've been dispersed and they didn't come back. I'm making that a specific statement because I'm going to hold to it because I think the scriptures bear it out. They never came back. Why would I say that? Because the religious leaders of the day, that's exactly what they say right here in your Bible. There are Christian preachers, commentators that will strongly disagree with me on that statement. And they will say, no, that's a theory. This is important because it is fundamental to understanding the most important prophecies in all of Scripture. The most numerical, the, the one prophecy that has more numerical points to it than any other is not about the Messiah, but about God bringing back the all 12 tribes. He talks about it from start to finish. But you know, there are tons of uh, Christian um, pastors, theologians that'll say, they already did that. That's been already fulfilled. And, and you know when they're going to tell you it happened? They're going to tell you it happened in 5, 
22 BC when Israel came back or when the tribe of Judah or the house of Judah came back from the Babylonian captivity. Then they're going to go through all kinds of historical and, uh, if you will, um, uh, that's not a good word. Let me just use the word historical. Uh, proofs and stuff on how people were migrating and this, that, and the other, and that certain groups from all the 12 tribes traveled to the south and coalesced with the tribe of Judah, i.e., we get the word Jew to refer to all the Jews. And they'll say, we, they all came back. I sit here and go, you guys are eating way too many mushrooms. Because your Bible clearly says that that was not the attitude of the religious leaders of the day. And on top of that, when God calls all the people back, it says that's going to be the greater exodus. And everybody's going to forget about the first exodus. Well, nobody talks about that, so that's proof enough that it hasn't happened yet, right? So they make this incredible comment, <clears throat> are, they, are they going to go to the dispersion? You have to key in on that. It's not an idle word. So he's saying, are they going to go to those of our lost brethren that acted like idiots and God divorced them. And then look at what it says. This is huge. Now you need to remember, they argue about this. There is heated debate about what Yeshua is about to do. And they are so disturbed that they send these people to arrest them. Okay, so they're not there just kind of, you know, buying time. This is a big deal to them. And then you have to ask, okay, so who is the ultimate author of Scripture? God is, right? And so the Holy Spirit, God, inspired the Apostle John to write down this seemingly odd detail. Why would he want us to know, and why would he want those of the diaspora to know about this issue of them worried that Jesus is going to go to the dispersion, the diaspora, and teach somebody? They're worried about it. But I want you to notice, this is huge, I want you to notice what they called them. So what did they call these people? The Greeks. Now, let's extrapolate just a few things. Do we honestly believe that these religious leaders in Judea, around Jerusalem, are worried that Jesus is going to leave Israel and teach Greeks? They'd be going, good, great, get out of town. Unless they're calling their exiled brethren Greeks. Because they're waiting, watch this, to this day, to this day, 
Jewish people that understand their Bible, they're waiting on the Messiah to come back, or the Messiah to come, restore all 12 tribes, and bring peace to the earth. They're waiting on that to happen. These religious leaders call them Greeks. Now, why do you think that's important? Watch this. You're going to need to write this down. Acts 21, verses 20 through 21. This is James talking to Paul. Acts 21, verses 20 through 21. Let me read this for you. So he says, you need to understand that there are all these people that have turned to Yeshua. They're zealous for the Torah. Everybody's heard you're back in town. That's a preface. And when they hear it, uh, they praise the master and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands of the Yehudim, the Jewish people, there are who have believed and are ardent or are zealous for the Torah. And they have been informed about you, Paul, that you teach all the Yehudim who are among the Gentiles for the sake of Moses, to forsake Moses, Moshe, saying not to circumcise the children nor walk according to the practices. So here's what he says. This is what everybody's heard. Everybody's heard that Paul is traveling among the Greeks in the northern Asia area, which is all the area, the first places where the people of the diaspora were sent, okay? And Paul had it in his mind that he had to get everywhere was there. He, he was zealous and bent on, he's like, and I have got to get to Spain, when he was trying to go through Rome, he was going to do all this stuff, and then he wanted to get to Spain. That was his ultimate goal. Why? Because at that time, that was the farthest they really understood that those of the northern tribes had been sent. Yeshua said, I only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Paul is clear. Watch this. Paul is clear when he, he states that his ministry, watch this, was to the Gentiles. Peter's ministry was to the Jew. Are you confused? Paul's ministry was yes to the Gentiles, but I firmly believe what he meant by that was that God had called him, watch this, an expert in the Torah. He's an expert in the Torah. Yeshua shows up personally to call out Saul of Tarsus to become an apostle. 
when Jesus is dead, buried, resurrected, and everything, what happens? The apostles get together, they cast lots, and they call another apostle to take Judas's place, Mattathias, Mattathias I think was his name. You never hear of him again, ever. It's the only comment we have of him. And then all of a sudden, Paul is on his road to Damascus to persecute the church, and Yeshua shows up personally. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Need to go over here and wait. Gets the scales on his eyes. God sends missionary. Gets the scales off. And then Paul tells us in his letters that he goes off into the desert, basically. And he says, and he was taught, he alludes to the fact that he was taught personally by the Lord for three years in the desert. Before he really starts his ministry. Why would God go to such an extreme? to get somebody highly, highly educated in the Torah, highly, highly, highly motivated to personally come back to call him and then to personally explain to him, quite probably, in the wilderness, all the intricacies of the gospel message, to send him to preach a gospel about a Jewish Messiah to Greeks that don't know anything about the Torah. I said in my book when I wrote about this, that'd be like us calling Einstein to teach first grade math. I'm sure he'd do a great job, but I guarantee you those kids wouldn't know the difference if Einstein was doing it or Paul Henry was doing it. Why would God need an expert in the Torah to go among the Greeks and teach these Gentiles unless who he's going after are the lost sheep of the house of Israel that he said he came to find? That they commonly called Greeks because they'd been there for 800 years and they were so rebellious they never even returned back to the Lord. And a lot of them even stayed in that area of Samaria. But a lot of them were physically transported and they just never went back home. They were physically taken somewhere and they ended up calling that place home. Now, some people will find this real offensive, but <clears throat> there were a lot of black people brought to the United States under slavery. And they now call this place home. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's just a physical help to help us understand how that can happen. And they called it home. My ancestry's from Scotland, came over here in the 1700s. But I'm telling y'all, I'm Texan. Preach it. I mean, I'm, I'm just Texan. I was born and raised right here. But I under, finally understand, you know, oh, well, my heritage comes from Scotland. I think that's kind of cool. But I'm Texan. I mean, take me up north. Everybody knows real quick, you're not from here. You must be from Texas. It doesn't take, all I got to do is open my mouth. I really don't think I have an accent. I just think everybody ought to talk this way, I guess. Um, <clears throat> but what I want you to notice is this fact that they call them, and they're worried about him going to the diaspora to teach these Greeks. I think it's clear when you understand all these other intricacies of the, of the scriptures that what they're concerned about, why, and why would they be concerned? 
Because deep down they know that at the end of time when the Messiah comes, the Messiah is going to bring these people back, and we don't want them all messed up with some counterfeit gospel. That's what they're worried about. They're already messed up enough. We don't think he's really the Messiah, and they're going to go up there and think he's the Messiah. He's going to mess everything up. And they actually still hold to that. Absolutely amazing. Now, why is that important? I'm going to reiterate this. Because there are people that will say, because I teach that God is going to, that there are two houses and God's going to bring them back. And you know what I, they say that that is? They call that the two-house theory. They call it a theory. Blatantly call it. Theologians that I respect. I really do. Read their books, watch their YouTube stuff. I'm like, these guys are geniuses. How can you be so dumb on this? (laughs) Theory, it's one of those most prominent prophecies in all of Scripture from start to finish. You're calling it a theory based on these lies that you've been told, mainly from Jewish sources, that when Israel came back from Babylon, all these other tribes joined them. They just didn't stay up there. They did. They just didn't stay up in the north. They moved down here and just became part of the tribe of Judah. We end up calling them everybody Jews. Why would Judah come up with that? (laughs) It's 12 brothers that are still fighting to this day. But what, what we often miss, because we think we're going to get resurrected and we're going to live in this heavenly celestial place, and we forget all about the fact that God says we're going to get a resurrected body and he's going to recreate heaven and earth and we're going to dwell here on this earth. You know what the argument's about? The inheritance. Land. Position. Praise God that when all that happens... We won't be dictating who's in front and who's in the back. God will. Amen? But we, that, anyhow, that's where all this comes from. And so if you believe like I do, and I'm assuming you do because you're still here, there are people that will tell you you're wrong and you don't know what you're talking about. And then they'll go off on all these elaborate details, extra biblical details on why that can't be possible. I try real hard to give you some very simple biblical facts so that you can say, well, according to the Bible and using my brain, I know that it is a fact and that God will do it and that it hasn't happened yet. And it didn't happen in 522 B.C., because they were still looking for it when Yeshua got here, and they're still looking for it in Israel today. To today. Did you know the number one reason why Jewish, Orthodox Jewish people do not accept Yeshua as the Messiah? Where's the fulfillment? When, when did everybody beat their swords into plowshares? When did he bring all 12 tribes back? Why are we not living in the land in peace in harmony with God here among us. It hasn't happened yet. It didn't happen 2,000 years ago. It hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting on it to happen, and that's what they'll tell you openly. 
they just can't put those pieces together. So they're still looking for it. They were looking for it back then. I'm telling you, it never happened. And when it does happen, we're going to forget the exodus with Moses. So you put those two things together, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out that it hadn't happened yet. But if you believe in this two-house theory, then you're believing in a theory and you're not very scripturally intelligent. And that stuff makes me nuts. Sorry, uh, but it does. I think it's biblically sound. And based on that, now you can understand your Bible better. That's my point. And understand what's going on in the world. So let's pick up in verse 37. This gets also absolutely fascinating. Verses 37 through 44, absolutely amazing. So verse 37, it says, and on the last day, now this is the celebration of what? You have to go back. This, they're celebrating tabernacles, Sukkot, okay? So it says, and on the last day, the great day, of the festival, Yeshua stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and let him who believes in me drink. As the scripture says, out of his innermost shall flow rivers of living water. And this he said concerning the spirit, this is John giving us his editorial comment. This he said concerning the spirit, which those believing in him were about to receive for the set apart or Holy Spirit was not yet given because Yeshua was not yet esteemed or glorified. Let me keep reading. Many from the crowd, when they heard this, that word, then they said, this is truly the prophet. You find that amazing? This is truly the prophet. Others said, no, he's the Messiah. But others said, does the Messiah not come, uh, come out of Galilee? <clears throat> Did not the scripture say that the Messiah comes from the seed of David? And from the village of Beth Bethlehem, where David was. So a division came about among the people because of him. And some of them wished to take him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers therefore came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to him, well, why didn't you bring him? The officers answered, never has any man spoken like this man. Hmm. The Pharisees therefore answered them and says, have you also been led astray? So now watch this. They're concerned, once again, when you read this passage, that, that Jewish people will be led astray. You, you can't miss that. But I want you to see something that's absolutely fascinating. So it's on the last day. It's called the great day of Sukkot. Jesus gets up and yells on this day. Once again, John goes to the, and the Holy Spirit leads him to go through the trouble to tell us, this is on the last day of Sukkot, you know, the great day. I'm going to assume that 99% of us in the room here don't understand why it was called the great day and why it was so special. Anybody? Um, I had to look it up. Okay, uh, I knew there was something. I never understood it, but uh, we'll get into that in just a second. <clears throat> but here's what I want you to see that's fascinating. So Yeshua says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and out of his innermost shall flow rivers of water. And based on that, people go, he's got to be the prophet. 
He's got to be the Messiah. Whoa, and then this debate breaks out. What? Because he said, if you come to me out of your innermost being, uh, everlasting, ever loving, uh, living waters are going to flow from you. And they go, oh, well, then he must be the prophet. Anybody here other than me kind of go, I'm not making a connection here, right? Well, partly because we don't understand the significance of it being the last day called the great day. So, and it says that out of him will flow these living waters. So, um, once again, John goes through this special trouble to tell us exactly what day. So it's not just during the feast. It's not just one of the days. He goes, this happened on this day, and it's called the great day. Has anyone here ever heard of a tradition, at least back then, I don't, well, they're not doing it now because the temple's not there, of them having this, it's called a water libation ceremony. Anybody ever hear about that? It's called it where they would they go through this incredible procession and everything, and they pour this water out around the altar and all this stuff. And we've got I got one here that's anybody else ever ever hear of it? Kind of hear of it. <clears throat> well, interestingly enough, it's not in the Torah. It's not in the Torah. I mean, that's why when I would hear about it, and I remember going. Water, I don't remember reading anything about God saying, you need to go over here, you need to get this water, you need to have this big processional thing and pray all these prayers. You know, This is how you close out, watch this, this is how you close out the holidays for the year. This is the last day of the last feast. Sukkot, the number one celebratory feast of all the feasts that were given in the Bible. Everybody's supposed to show up and it's literally commanded and you better be happy. (laughs) And you come and get whatever you want, drink whatever you want, just come and party and you need to be happy. And then this is how they would close out that getting ready for the next season or the next year and the next one that would happen would be Passover which we're coming up on in a month. You really want to be here for that. I'll leave it at there now. The only way I can try to explain this, I'm going to read something out of this book by Eli Lazork and Eisenberg uh, that I've told you about. It's really his commentary on the book of John, Discovering Jesus, King of All Israel. So this is basically from pages 125 and 126. It's not real long, but I just want you to pay attention because I couldn't condense it where it made as much sense as, plus he has a doctorate degree and he's smart. (laughs) So just listen to what he says here. Sadducees and Pharisees were two Israelite Judean parties that were often at odds with each other. Sadducees were staunch conservatives who saw Pharisees as dangerous innovators and revisionists, as did many others, including Jesus. Sadducees and Pharisees fought over many issues. One of the issues concerned a water ceremony that was held during the Feast of Tabernacles. 
the Sadducees opposed the ceremony because it was not prescribed in the Torah, and the Pharisees supported it. We do not know exactly how or where the water-pouring ceremonies were conducted since all of our sources for this information come to us from a later period. In these later, in these later sources, we are told that priests drew water from the pool of Siloam. With the high priest leading the way, they carried a golden pitcher full of water to the temple and then proceeded around the altar. As the priest neared the water gate, the shofar was blown followed by singing of psalms and praise and thanksgiving to God for the harvest. As the ceremony developed, Pharisees insisted that significant emphasis should be placed on the petition for rain. Imagine that. Such symbolism carried the meaning of the festival beyond the traditional emphasis of the desert experience being protected while living in temporary dwelling places or tents. The harvest was symbolized by the citrus fruits that were raised in thanksgiving to God for the recently gathered fruits. The Sadducees in general resisted such a changed emphasis on Sukkot as revisionist. You thought that was just a 2019 American problem, didn't you? The conflict developed further when Alexander Janus, the Sadducean high priest and king, angered by the Pharisees, poured the water out at his feet rather than making an offering of it and raised his arm in solemn affirmation as having delivered the petition on behalf of the people. When Janus died... His wife, Alexandria Salome, made peace with the Pharisees in exchange for their support for her to remain queen of the land and her son to be made high priest. Imagine that. Once again, you thought politics only got corrupted here in America in our time. We haven't changed one bit. That's why the scripture says there's nothing new under the sun. The Pharisees' triumph in this event meant that by the time of Jesus, the Pharisaic water-related ceremony was already firmly established. So what was happening? This is called the last day, the great day, and they've got a real strong man-made tradition revolving around water. Yeshua's already been teaching and stirring up a commotion, and this event is going on that day. That's why John tells us. It was the last day, the great day. And when this happens, Yeshua cries out with a loud voice, you want living water? Come to me. It's a call for us to return to God and his word and stop our man-made traditional garbage. Folks, this is why when they heard him say this, they went, whoa. He also taught unlike anybody else had ever taught. Um, but notice here it says that 
in verse 40 that many from the crowd, when they heard this word, they said that truly he is the prophet. So, folks, I honestly believe that the, the main reason why they did this and they jumped to this conclusion is because Yeshua takes, which is what he did all the time, he took an event that was going on around him and he seized the moment to teach a truth. He did it with the rabbis when they were doing their garbage and nullifying the word of God. He did it when he was challenged. He did it when someone uh, would be dead and he'd use that moment to raise him from the dead and prove that he's the Messiah. On and on and on, he used what was going on around him. Like when he heard about Lazarus dying and he goes, I think I'll just wait a few days. He seized the moment to teach a truth that he really is God. This is what he was doing here. Um, let, me go, let me go on here before I get too far ahead of myself because in verse 42 it says, did not the scripture say that the Messiah is, because now they're arguing. They're saying he's the prophet, he's the Messiah. And others are like, no, he can't be the Messiah you know, because you know, we know where he comes from and you know, all this other stuff. So there's these passages about Bethlehem. So we know that he was born in Bethlehem, but where did he actually live? Nazareth. So as soon as he's born in Bethlehem, we know the story. What happens? He flees, Herod dies, and he comes back, right? By the time all that happens, he's a couple of years old. Okay? So, um, but here's a couple of passages for your three, uh, two that you need to write down. Micah Verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, Micah 5, 2, where it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, uh, you are little among the clans of Judah, but I, uh, out of you shall come forth to me the one who to become ruler in Israel, and his comings forth, watch this, are of old from everlasting. So it's saying here clearly that out of Bethlehem, there's going to be one that's going to come that's going to rule Jerusalem or rule Israel, but his going forths are from old and literally from everlasting, making a comment, this is the Messiah to come that God has prophesied about from the very beginning. They, they understood this. Now another one is Psalm 89, verse 3 and 4. Psalms 89, verse 3 and 4, you, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Folks, this is what they were talking about when they're like, okay, hold on a minute. How can Yeshua be the Messiah or the prophet? The Messiah has got to come out of Bethlehem. We know where he's from. They know he's from Nazareth. They're not knowing that he was actually born in Bethlehem. And they're actually even arguing about him actually coming from the seed of David. We don't have time to chase that tonight. But he, he actually did come from the seed of David. It can be proven from the scriptures. And this, but this is what they're arguing about. And so in verse 43, it says, So a division came about among the people because of him. And then others wanted to uh, take hold of him, but no one laid a hand on him. So this is when the officers come back. All this has happened. There's this commotion breaking out because of what he's doing and what he's saying. And the officers come back to the priest and are like, well, so why didn't you bring him back? And they come back because they say, well, you know what? Uh, never has any man spoken like this man. 
They went there to arrest him and they were taken back by what he said. Now here's what we need to pick up on. So what did they hear him say? When they show up, all these other teachings have already happened. They show up on the last day, the great day. The high priest is doing all this stuff. There's all this hoopla going on in Jerusalem. They're blowing the shofars. They're, it's a party. And what? And they're actually praying for rain. Folks, they've taken something that God told them to do, and then they've added to it, and they're taking water, pouring it out, begging for rain. I can firmly say that that is not, that would not have been God sanctioned. He's added to what he told them to do, and they're actually using something as, as symbolic to, you know, well, we're doing this. What happens when you do that? You take that water in this golden pitcher, and all of a sudden you put magical thoughts, if you will, on that water. And that when you do these things and you pour this out, then something supernatural will happen. Folks, that's just the way we are as human beings. That's why God said explicitly, you're not to carve anything. You're not to worship anything other than me. You're not to carve an image of me because we're just dumb. And we just start to put more emphasis on a thing than the creator. Um, and that's what they were doing. So Yeshua steps up and he goes, oh, you want real living water? You need to come to me. That's what they heard. And when they come back, they go, nobody has talked like this man. What in the world could they be referring to? Now, um, in Matthew chapter 7, 29, you need to jot this down there next to, if you want, verse 46. Matthew 7, 29, it says, For he was teaching them as one possessing authority, not as the scribes. What does that mean? Here's what they would typically do, and it's even done to this day. It becomes oh, mind-numbing. Well, so-and-so says, and so-and-so says that so-and-so says, and Rabbi so-and-so says this, or Pastor so-and-so says this, or John MacArthur says this, or Chuck Swindoll says this, or, or whatever, whoever says this, or whoever's teaching that. or what. That's how the rabbis would teach, and they would quote uh, the rabbis. And they, that's what all of the Talmud is, is all the teachings and collections of the teachings of all the rabbis and the rulings. Massive volume. And to get really, really good as a rabbi would determine on how good you are at quoting all the rabbis. Watch this. Kind of like a really good lawyer in America is really, really good at citing other laws or other rulings that, watch this, Give precedent. That the law, the courts have said this, therefore this court has to weigh that 
in high esteem because this is a legal ruling in our country and set a precedent. So if you're going to go against that precedent, you had better have some very, very compelling proofs because that's what the arguments are going to come with you from from that standpoint. Right? That's what happens in our legal system today. That's what the rabbis would do. That what, whatever rabbis had made whatever rulings and teachings and stuff that had set a precedent and they would keep building on precedent after precedent after precedent. They, they would just keep building this snowball. Yeshua comes along and he goes, you know what? You've heard it said, da 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 But I say. That's where they were saying, nobody talks like this guy. And he doesn't even, he, you never find this in Yeshua where he goes, you know what, this is my opinion. Right? You'll hear Paul say that a lot. Now, this isn't in scripture. You can't prove this. This is my opinion. I'll say that a lot. Yeshua never said that. He never goes, you know what, this is my opinion. He always spoke with clear authority. Why? Because he is the lawgiver. He's the creator of the universe. He's the one that had married Israel and is going to remarry Israel. And we've been grafted into that. Hallelujah, amen, right? So they, he comes and he's speaking with great authority. They show up. There's this water libation thing going on. Everybody's excited. It is their big traditional deal. And Yeshua stops them cold. Oh, You want real living water? You need to come right here. Everybody was taken back by it. And they didn't know how to handle it. Some go, he's the prophet. Others are saying, no, he's got to be the Messiah. Then there's others that are arguing from Scripture, he can't be the Messiah. And they start giving these peripheral facts. He's got to come from the city of David. He's got to come out of Bethlehem. These are people that know their Bible. They're just spitting this stuff out. And watch this. They don't have a Bible in their iPhone. They don't own a copy. They've studied it by listening. If they can make notes, make whatever notes or whatever they can. They grew up studying this on a regular basis every Sabbath and in their homes. And they knew their Bible. And they're quoting all this stuff and they're talking about all this stuff and they're not really getting it. Now watch this. So these leaders come back and they're like, man, no one has ever talked like this guy. Now there's this debate going on among these Pharisees and leaders. And this is again amazing. So in verse 47, the Pharisees therefore uh, answered them, and have you also been led astray? Now let's pick up in verse 48. He goes, has any one of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? They're starting to get upset. They're starting to get concerned. Look, we just sent you to do a simple thing. Can you just arrest this guy and bring him home? Just, can you just go get him and bring him here? And they come back all glassy-eyed. No one's ever talked like this guy. So now they're really nervous. 
Has any one of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? Let me go ahead and give you this. John 12, 42. We'll get there later, but John 12, 42, write that down. It says, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. We'll see that later, like I said, when we get to chapter 12. But they say many of the leaders were believing in him. They knew their Bible and they were believing in him, but watch this, but they wouldn't speak out. You find that interesting. These are religious leaders that now actually believe that he's the Messiah, the one they've been waiting on. But they will not speak out. Why? They were more concerned about getting kicked out of the synagogue than they were about following the Messiah they've been waiting on. And they knew scripturally, they, they could read the signs and they're like, he is the Messiah. But I ain't saying anything. Folks, I think that's true with a lot of pastors today. There's many things that they know is true, but they're just not going to talk about it because if they do, they're going to run off their crowd. If they run off the crowd, they're not going to get paid. We're not going to be able to pay the mortgage. I'm going to have to go to work at Walmart, be a door greeter. We've gotten close here. Uh, but I'm going to keep teaching the truth. I'm going to keep telling you what the Bible says even if I have to go to work at Walmart. I'm more scared of being um, held accountable by my boss than I am any person sitting in this room. Because I'm going to be held accountable to the King of Kings, God of all gods. I'm going to tell everybody exactly what his word says, no matter what it costs me. Um, <clears throat> now then watch this, <laughs> because this is amazing. Once again, you have to slow down and read and then kind of get into their head and connect some dots. Remember who's talking. So who's talking here? The, the, high, the, the priests, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Let me just ask you this. What was the number one job of these religious leaders? To teach the people the Torah, to teach the people what the Bible really says, right? That's their number one job is to teach these people what the Bible really says. Their first question is, have any of the other Pharisees believed in him? They're going to try to you know, do damage control. Now they're going to, they're going to try to spin the story, in other words. <laughs> and then he goes, watch this, verse 49. But this crowd that doesn't even know the Torah, they're accursed. <laughs> That's like saying with a megaphone. No, 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 no. That's like tweeting or putting on Facebook I am the biggest failure of all time. The people I'm teaching are ignorant. Yet they didn't even just do it on Twitter. It's in the Bible. It's recorded for all of eternity. Is that not amazing? They're saying this crowd doesn't even know the Torah and they're accursed. What crowd are they talking about? The people that are in Jerusalem celebrating Sukkot that they were there to do the big deal for to teach them the Torah. 
<laughs> These dumb people, they don't even know the Bible. Matter of fact, they're accursed. Who's their teacher? Well, don't look, don't, let's not go there. They just don't know what they're talking about. Well, who's their teacher? Yeah, but, yeah, but they don't know what they're talking about. These are the people that are quoting scripture, so they've been taught. It's just absolutely amazing to me when they said this. And then watch this in verse 50, and we'll, we'll close. So um, Nicodemon, or Nicodemus, in many of our translations, this is the guy that came to Yeshua at night. This is in verse 50. He's being one of them. He's what? He's one of the Pharisees. And he said to them, does our Torah judge a man unless it hears first from him and knows what he's doing? He's just asking a simple question, but notice what he says. He's bringing this home. He's trying to hold them accountable to the, the right ruling. <clears throat> for instance, for us, the one thing that should keep our nation together and whole and consistent isn't any one elected official or party or a, a legislated law, but it's what? The Constitution of the United States of America. For a country, that should be our standard, that everything goes back to, that this governs, this document governs everything else that we do. That's what it should be. For the Jewish people, it should be, what does the Torah say that we should be doing? Okay? For us as believers, it should be, what does the Bible say that we should be doing? For New Testament believers, it should be, what did Yeshua say that we should be doing? Not what other people say about what he said, not necessarily about our confused understanding of Paul and Peter and other documents in the Bible, but what did Yeshua say? That, that should govern what we do, right? So Nicodemus says, does our, our Torah judge a man unless we first hear from him and find out what he's, what he's doing? He's trying to bring it back home, and he's got a valid point. Here's um, four verses for you to write down. Deuteronomy 1.16. I mean, it can't be any more clear, and we've been through this, but Deuteronomy 1.16. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. Moses is saying, listen, I've given these judges and this is what's supposed to happen. And that they're to, they're to judge righteously between a man and his brother and they're to, they're to hear these cases. Let's go on to another one. Deuteronomy 17, 6. Deuteronomy 17, 6. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses shall he that is to die be put to death. He is not put to death by the mouth of one witness. That's even in our judicial code. It can't be just based on one person saying something. There's got to be a lot of evidence. In the Bible, it's like you cannot issue out the death penalty on just the testimony of one person. You can't do it. 
You can't just have somebody, they killed somebody, okay, well, we're gonna go kill them. There's gotta be a lot more evidence. Let's go on. Deuteronomy 19.15. Deuteronomy 19.15. One witness does not rise up against a man concerning any crookedness or any sin that he commits. Out of the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses, a matter is established. <clears throat> then you get to Proverbs 18.13. <laughs> I stuck this one in here because it's, I just thought it was funny. Proverbs 18.13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. So out of their own scriptures, Nicodemus says, does our Torah judge and condemn a man before we even hear what he has to say and what he's been doing? What is their answer? Well, they don't answer it. They answer it with a question. Classic political move, classic debate issue or debate move. Verse 52, they answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And then they all leave. I think they knew that he was sympathetic to Yeshua. It says that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, but at least here, and then we'll see it again later, but we, we see here where he goes, well, now hold on a minute. What about what our Torah says? And shouldn't we listen before we start judging this man? And what do they do? They don't answer it. Why? Because they don't have an answer. So what do they do? They accuse him. Watch this. They accuse him of being wrong. You, you go search it yourself. You'll find that no prophet comes out of Galilee. And then they all leave because they don't have anything to rest on. Now, here's what I want you to see in this whole thing. Yeshua shows up, and he takes a tradition of men that's been tacked on to what God commanded. And even though God didn't command it, but God said, I'm going to take this, and I'm going to try to point you back to me. Some did, some didn't. But the ones that got most peeved were the religious leaders. Why would that be? Because they know in their heart of hearts, we've added to this. And no matter how many times you keep telling yourself, God gave me the authority to it, down in your heart of hearts, you know it's still going against what he said. And there's always going to be this internal struggle when you know that the Word of God says this, but this is what you're doing. No matter what excuses you've made, no matter what proof texts you've used, down in your heart of hearts, you know it ain't right. It's just not right. And so what do we typically do? Instead of dealing with it, we run and try to deflect. 
because none of us really want to know the truth. I've said this a million times. I'll say it again. None of us really want to know the truth. What we really want to know, or we don't want to hear the truth, what we really want to hear is that what we already believe is the truth. That's what we really want to hear. But when we hear something that goes contrary to what we thought was the truth, now you're faced with a choice. You either face the truth and align your life with it, or your life is going to crash into it. Level is level. Plum is plum. Two and two is four. It's never five. Male is male, female is female, yet that's what we're arguing about in our culture. Biology, not even chromosomal issues, just physical biology, and people getting all twisted. If you use the, there's a lady that's being sued because she used the wrong personal pronoun addressing somebody. In our country. Facts are facts. Men are built one way, women are built another. Hallelujah, praise God, right? But we can't even agree on that. And so people, folks, either you see the truth and you, it is the truth and you don't even have to agree with it. You can say, well, that's the truth, but that ain't what I'm doing. Okay, I can actually respect that kind of an attitude. At least you'll admit that's the truth. Let's go have a Coke. But for folks to say, no, no, and then they want to deflect and they don't want to talk about it and they don't want to deal with it. This is what the Bible says. This is what Jesus said. This is what's going on. This is what's happening in our country. This is what's happening around the world. This is where we're headed. And everybody just wants to go, yeah, yeah, well, that's, but I, I don't care. And it's just all wrong. And they don't know what they're talking about. That's a theory. And that's not, I tell you what, let's, let's talk about CERN, the big collider over in Europe. Let's def- in other words, let's deflect instead of just dealing with the problem. Is that an issue? Well, yeah, it can be, but is that the issue? No, it's not. The list goes on and on and on, and even within the church. And so you bring some of this stuff up, and then what happens? Yeah, well, that's you. Praise God he's showing you that, but that's not what I'm doing. We're going to go a different direction, and I guess you went Jewish. <laughs> and you go, okay, well... Yeshua came to die on the cross to deal with a problem. It was your sin and my sin, but it was even, watch this, this is where it's going to sound a little strange, bigger than that. Why would I say that? Why is it bigger than just your sin and my sin? When I lied, you lied, you cheated, you did this, you looked at a guy lustfully, you looked at a woman lustfully, you had an affair, you did, whatever all of that stuff is, right? Anybody here perfect? (laughs) nobody, right? I mean, we've all messed up royal, right? Why would I say with Jesus dying on the cross, the issue was bigger than him taking care of that sin? Because God threw down the gauntlet saying that I'm going to do something out of all the people groups on the earth, and I'm going to birth one And this one is going to be so rebellious. Why? Because they're human. They're typical of humanity. There's nothing special about them. 
They're just typical people. I'm going to take this people group and I'm going to bless them. I'm going to give them the gift of the Torah. Sidestep. We went to see the movie, The Moses Controversy. And if you didn't get to see it, rest assured, because I want to buy it for our church to view here again. I thought it was fascinating. The, the gift of the Torah and how that impacted, watch this, the world. Oh my goodness. He laid the gauntlet down and said, and I'm going to do this with these people. They're going to be so rebellious. I'm going to kick them out of the land. They're going to get removed to the farthest part of the earth. Then I'm going to do the miraculous and I'm going to bring them back and everybody's going to go, you are God. He will shut all mouths. There will be no arguing. There will be no deflection. There will be no dancing around it. Nothing. Everybody will finally say, you know what? He's the king of kings and Lord of all lords. He is God. He is who he said he was. Look at what he did. Look at what happened. Well, there was a problem when he divorced Israel, and I think he did that on purpose to make it look absolutely impossible. That it can't happen. He can't break his own law. But he also knew that he needed to become a man whose from walking was from old, from everlasting and take on flesh as the husband and release the divorce decree, rise from the dead, go down into hell and go, you blew it, big boys. What you thought was perfect, you didn't understand. I'm outside of time. You cannot outmaneuver me. I not only know what you will do, watch this, he's already experienced it. You can't wrap your brain really around that one, but God is outside of time and space, which means he's not logistically figuring out what can happen. He's already been there. So he's got it all under control and he said, this is exactly what I'm gonna do and when I do this, I'm gonna prove to all of you dumb demons, all of you angelic beings that rebelled against me, all of you human beings that wanted to worship them instead of me, I'm gonna prove to everybody, I am Yahovah, the most high God. And I sent my son, Yeshua, which means Yahovah saves, to, to do all this so that I could do the impossible so that for the rest of eternity in the new Jerusalem, on the new earth, underneath the new heavens, we're always gonna say, our God reigns. That's why when he came, it was bigger than you taking care of your lie. Watch this. It was dealing with the integrity of his name. You see, it's always about him. It's not about us. But we get to be part of the story, which is pretty cool. Pretty cool. Your God loves you so much. He wants to walk with you. He crossed eternity to restore that relationship that was lost. I just want you to see that it's bigger 
than taking care of what you did last week that you shouldn't have done. Did he do that? Yes. Is he concerned about your life? Yeah. But you know what he's really concerned about? Is about your life and my life glorifying him. He's not that concerned about you learning how to pray so that you can get whatever coming into your life. I hear that stuff all the time. It just makes me nauseous. Read it in books and everything else. I'm like, oh my gosh. Me, 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 me. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about him and it's about glorifying our father. That's what it's about. So when we focus on that, that's why Jesus said, what? Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and what? And his righteousness. Then all of these other things you're talking about, he'll add all that to you when that becomes your focal point. Seeking first God and his kingdom and his righteousness. When that becomes your motivating factor for getting up in the morning, then he will take care of everything else. Not vice versa. When you start praying to God to take care of all your other else before we're glorifying our king. Glorify the king and then he adds everything else. And that's why Yeshua came. Because watch this, that's what we're going to do for all of eternity. We're going to be glorifying our king. I think we'll get up every morning and it'll be new. Grow up here, this dumb black dirt swells and shrinks and swells and shrinks. Sometimes you stick your foot in it. And there's going to come a day when I'm going to be in the Garden of Eden. Eating from the tree of life. Taking care of God's garden. without worrying about stepping on a thorn. I think for the rest of eternity, I'm going to look around and go, this is just mind-boggling. I don't think we will ever take it for granted. I don't think we'll ever get, you know, used to it. I think we'll be gripped in awe for thousands and thousands of years that we're actually walking around with angels. We're walking with Yahovah like Adam and Eve did in the garden without fear of death. Absolutely beautiful and perfect. Won't have to worry about an animal eating another animal. Getting caught off guard. It's just going to be incredible. Folks, that's the life that God came to give you. That's the physical side of it, but the reality of it, you can experience that today. It's called walking with your king. <laughs> walking with your king and going, you know what? It's all good. Doesn't matter what happens. 
my Yeshua is outside of time and space. The Father is outside of time and space. I don't have to worry about anything. Folks, that's awesome. And I can walk in the power and authority of the king today? Well, all righty then. Hallelujah. Because he said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He didn't say that I came that you might get life one day and have it more abundantly when you get in heaven. He said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Now, present tense.